0: Arise, the Honorable, the Chief Justice, and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, the
1: Supreme Court of North Carolina has resumed sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court.
2: Morning, everybody, maybe afternoon. Uh, First, let me start by uh, expressing that Justice uh, Irvin, uh, as a precautionary measure, is wearing his mask. He uh, potentially or has been uh, exposed to COVID, and his doctor says that's the best approach. And Justice Morgan has a potential conflict of interest in the next case, so he uh, has decided that Uh, the best course is to show uh, him recused in that case. So uh, the case that we will now hear is Fund Holder Reports, LLC versus uh, NC uh, Department of State Treasurer, and we will hear from the appellant. And as I did before, I'll point out the lectern roster and whatever is adjustable, so it'll go up and down if anybody is uncomfortable with the height.
3: Well, thank you, Your Honor. May it please the Court. My name is Dan Gibson. I represent Petitioner Fund Holder Reports in this case. I'd like to reserve five minutes of my time for rebuttal. The central issue in this case is whether Fund Holder Reports may deposit a check on behalf of its client with a valid power of attorney. The issue that we're dealing with is a statute, chapter 116B-78, subsection D, that prevents a property finder, and we all agree fund holder reports is a property finder, from negotiating the check made payable to the owner. So essentially the question is whether a deposit is ever a negotiation or is always a negotiation for the purposes of this statute. It's our argument that a deposit may be a negotiation but a deposit is not necessarily always a negotiation
1: do it, it, does this case hinge on whether we accept your argument the, the argument that you just outlined
3: i think for the purposes of interpreting this statute and the word negotiation yes it does All
1: right so so basically your position rises or falls with whether we conclude that a negotiation always includes a deposit?
3: That is one aspect. We are also arguing in the alternative that the law of agency, regardless of whether or not a negotiation is always a deposit, allows fund holder reports to act on behalf of its client. So
1: you really have two arguments then?
3: That's correct, Your Honor. Okay, thank you. Um, For the purposes of of this argument, I'm, I'm trying to limit my argument to the statutory text. So, essentially, what's happened in this case is my client, Fund Holder Reports, is a property finder. That means they go out and find large sums of money that have escheated to the state and are being held in the treasurer's escheat fund. When they find that amount of money and they believe they have found the person that that money is entitled to, they contact that person and they say, we found X number of dollars. We would like to act as your agent to collect that money from the treasurer and ultimately get it to you. Now they charge a fee for that service. Um, I think fairly obviously they're, they're not in the charity business, they're in the, the business of uh, making a profit here. Um, and as part of their agreement with the client, they have made it their habit to get a power of attorney from the client to act on behalf of their client. Uh, that makes a lot of this process uh, more streamlined, a lot of it more simple. So, for example, under that power of attorney, they make an application directly to the treasurer for their client, rather than the client themselves making the application. Now, my client did this for several years without there being any sort of issue. Um, And eventually, the treasurer came along and said, hold on, we see that you are depositing checks into your client's trust account, and then dispersing those checks um, to your client and also to yourself for the property finder's fee we don't believe you can deposit those checks um, on behalf of your client in trust for your client. So we asked for a declaratory ruling from the treasurer. We said, uh, tell us under what circumstances, if any, we can deposit a check with a valid power of attorney, tell us whether or not you can issue a separate check to our client and to us for our finder's fee, because the finder's fee is statutorily defined, and third, tell us whether or not we can receive cash property. And those questions flow directly from the statute and flow from the reasons why you should rule on fund behalf.
1: When you submitted the question about cash property, did you understand that to mean actual currency or did you understand it to include checks as your colleagues say it really consists of?
3: I I think within the purposes of the statute and the statute's language, and and I'll I'll freely admit, Your Honor, I don't think the statute is exactly a model of clarity. Um, The statute says that um, any person who enters into an agreement covered by this section with an owner shall be allowed to receive cash property, but not tangible property or securities on behalf of the owner. But shall not be authorized to the nego- negotiate the check made payable to the owner. So, uh, cash property is is something of an odd term. I haven't found a statute or a case that defines cash property. I think it certainly includes physical money, but I think the treasurer's argument that it also includes checks does flow logically from the statute.
1: At the, at the time, at the time the request for declaratory ruling was submitted, did you have the understanding you have? just expressed to me. I'm not sure that makes any difference, but I mean it helps enlighten me as to understanding what the issue before the uh, treasurer and the trial court was.
3: The reason why we were asking that question is because we think the there is something of a conflict or contradiction within the statute when it says you can receive cash property but not negotiate the check, and we were asking for how the treasurer explains that contradiction. And that contradiction is the first reason why I think you should rule on behalf of fund holder reports here. So if we have a statute that says my client can receive cash property, it's our submission that receive cash property at minimum includes receiving actual cash, dollar bills. Um, So where would that apply in this context? If you look at the uniform commercial code, the the larger context of banking law, whenever someone has a check, a check is what's called a draft. That is a order for a bank to pay a certain amount of money to a certain person. So if I have a check from uh, Ryan Park to myself for $1,500 from First Citizens Bank, I can take that check to First Citizens Bank and say, I am in physical possession of this check, and the check says it's payable to me. I am making a demand for payment on you. I want you to exchange this check for the amount of money that it says. The UCC specifically contemplates that, that's section 25-3-501. And this court has held that a presentment is not a deposit, it's not a negotiation. It is a separate action.
1: Now, is there is there any question that in this case your client deposits money into the client specific trust account? Uh, in the past, that's been
3: our practice. The purpose for the declaratory ruling here is to find out how we can practice in a way that conforms to North Carolina's law. Right. So, really, this is a uh, prospective, a forward looking question. So the, the issue here is, let's say my client gets a check for $30,000 from the treasurer, and there are $30,000 checks in the record here. Right. And they take that check down to the issuing bank, and they say, we're making a presentment of this check. We are demanding payment. Here's our valid power of attorney from the owner. We've all stipulated that there's a valid power of attorney here. We are, as the agent of the owner, entitled to payment on this check. So here's a check. Give us $30,000 in cash. We have just, within the terms of the statute, received cash property. Now.
1: Now, the next step in your process, at least as I understood it, was that you did what your client would expect, which is that you wrote, you in some way conveyed the amount of the finder's fee to your own pocket and the remainder to the... Pocket of the client. Uh, do you, your colleagues, argue that there's certainly a negotiation at the second stage of this process? Do you dispute that?
3: At the second stage, um, I think the best practice for my client. Um, and this is not the, the historical practice and, and to be clear when I'm talking about my client going to the, the bank and making a presentment of the right. check that's not historically been their practice and really I think we right. should and be I, avoiding I, that and walking around hand,
1: I don't think your colleagues would say if they sent you the check and you then immediately turned around and handed the check in, in, in its in, the, in its entire amount the the old check to the client. I don't think it sounds like they don't have a problem with that. They don't have a problem with that. I'm
3: curious whether or not they'd have a problem with us making a presentment of the check to a bank, uh, given that our law is pretty clear that a presentment isn't a deposit or a negotiation. It's just a demand for payment. It's, it's what checks are made to do. Uh, a check is made to eventually come into the form of money. It is a symbol that says, I have X amount of dollars in my account and I am giving you possession and ownership of the X amount of dollars the check is made out to. But,
1: but under your old practice, as at least as it's described in the record, at the stage in which your client transferred the funds obtained from the SG fund less a fee to your client, your client's client, I guess, and then retained the other portion. Is there a negotiation at that stage?
3: I think at that point, there most certainly is a negotiation. Um, And one of the things I was expecting the treasurer to say here in their declaratory ruling is, okay, fine, you can put it in a trust account, but you've got to do what most people with trust accounts do. You make a distribution statement to the client. You have the client sign off on it. It says, you know, X amount of dollars goes to the client, Y amount of dollars goes to us. We're all agreeing to that. And I think if the client agrees to that and says, yes, this is your finder's fee, then I don't think it's a negotiation at that point because by signing the distribution statement, the client has then said this money is now your money. That's that's my own practice with my own firm's trust account when I receive settlement checks. Before I di- disperse settlement checks, I have my client come in. I say, we got $20,000 on your case. I have a 10% contingency. I'm going to take two. You're going to get 18. If that's okay with you, let's all sign off on this and we'll make the disbursements as we all agree to make the disbursements. I don't think that's a negotiation because the person who owns the fund has agreed to it. I suppose if there is a negotiation, it's the owner of the fund then negotiating it to my client. Um, Because the the point of negotiation, and this is the second reason why I think you should agree with my client, uh, a negotiation is a transfer of possession in the check that then makes the person the holder. And the holder is the person who's entitled to payment on the check. Again, using my Ryan Park example, and I'm using Ryan because he's a nice guy and I know he doesn't mind. Um, if Ryan writes a check to me for $1,000 um, and gives me the check, then I am the holder of the check. I have possession of it, and I am legally entitled to payment on the
4: check. And, Counselor, i I'd like uh, um, uh, some clarification. Um, you're saying that negotiation is at the point of issuance, or I- I'm a little confused about your argument. Uh, because the statute clearly says that negotiation, I need, need my glasses, a negotiation mean, uh, means a transfer of possession and then um, other than the issuer uh, to a person. So help me understand, because you're using an example where there's actually the issuance of a check. And based on my reading of the statute, that's not negotiation. It's the next step down the line. Can you help help me uh,
3: understand? Apologies if I was unclear on that. The original issuance of the check isn't the negotiation. Okay. But the holder of the check, so if I'm the person who the check is made payable to, I can then create other holders.
4: Or a holder in due course.
3: Or a holder in due course. And that is the negotiation process. Okay. So I'm transferring possession of the check and I'm also transferring legal entitlement to the payment of the check. So I can flip my check over, if it says payable to Art Daniel Gibson, and I can write out uh, endorsed to Marion White, and I can sign it, and at that point, I have negotiated the check. Well, I'd also have to give her possession of the check under the statute. At that point, I have negotiated the check. Um, and there are certainly circumstances where depositing a check is a negotiation of the check. But not every negotiation is a deposit, and not every deposit is a negotiation. The example I just used, where I write on the back of the check, now this check is payable to Marion White. That's not a deposit, but it is negotiation. Uh, A deposit isn't necessarily a negotiation in the same way. And there's a few places in the UCC that, at the very least, suggest that. I think the most important in the UCC Is when it talks about the bank generally being the collecting agent for the depositor. Our courts and the UCC have made it abundantly clear when I deposit a check in a bank, that check doesn't become the bank's property. The money that that check represents is my property. Um, The example I think of here is it's a wonderful life. George Bailey loses his client's check. He's not upset because he's lost his money. He's upset because he's lost his customer's money. And that makes him personally liable to his customer. Because it was never his money, it was always his customer's money. So uh, what the bank is in that circumstance is, as the UCC refers to it, they're a collecting agent. And the reason why they're essentially an agent acting for the depositor is it's uh, very inefficient and very insecure for me to take every check that I receive and go to the bank that issued it and say, I'm making presentment, please pay me on this check, and then I'm going to take a bag of money out of here and I'm going to deposit that money with my bank. So what we do instead of that is I deposit the check with my bank, my bank calls up the issuing bank and says, we've got a check here from your customer for this amount to our customer. We would like you to transfer funds from that customer's account to our customer's account. Now, back in the day, there used to be physical bags of checks and physical bags of money passing hands between uh, between banks. Now, today, we generally do that by wiring. But at no point in time does the check or the money that the check represents become the bank's property. It's still your property. That's why the bank is your collecting agent the UCC suggests at least one circumstance under which the bank becomes the holder. And that is uh, UCC 4-205. Um, it says the depository bank becomes a holder of the item if the customer at the time of the delivery was a holder of the item, whether or not the customer endorses the item, and the depository bank warrants to the collecting banks, the payer banks, that the, and the drawer that the amount of the item was paid to the customer or deposited to the customer's account. Now there's two reasons why this statute exists. One is, not, in not every instance does the depositor endorse the check. And second, some banks have made it their practice to credit your account with that check immediately upon your deposit. So they have a uh, outstanding liability at that point. They have said, we're gonna assume on the credit of uh, your trustworthiness that this check is legitimate. You have a $1,500 check in your name, we're gonna credit your account with $1,500. And they do that before they have called up the issuing bank and received money from the issuing bank. So at that point, they are a holder of the check precisely because they have credited your account with money before they've actually received that money from the bank. Now that's not every bank's practice. Some banks specifically require you to endorse a check as part of the deposit process. But the UCC is also clear about that, that an endorsement is not always a negotiation. It says that in the comment to section 3-204, that not every endorsement is a negotiation. In some instances, uh, an endorsement is essentially just Uh, identifying receipt of payment of funds so if we go back to the presentment issue when I present that check to the bank the bank may very well say well we want you to sign the back of the check you're not signing the back of the check because you're making the bank the holder in the presentment you're signing the back of the check so the bank has evidence that you've received the funds that the check represents so you can't later on go back to the bank and say well I never got my thirty thousand dollars the bank then has a receipt that they paid you the $30,000 that the check represents. So not every negotiation is a deposit, not every endorsement is a negotiation. Um, and I would also add that not every check is always negotiable.
4: Well, well Counselor, I do need to ask one more question, if I may, um, you, you, you make it sound like these checks somehow, if they're signed, they're receipts from the bank, or, or from me, if I take this check to the bank and I endorse it on the back, and that somehow acts as some kind of receipt, um, especially if uh, I'm I'm only getting a provisional credit and I can't even draw against it. How how is that? I've not. Do you have any um, basis for that in the law uh, that it would be a receipt?
3: Yes, Your Honor. I think the the clearest basis basis for that is the official comment to 3-204 in the UCC. It talks a lot about. Um, Endorsement and what endorsement may or may not mean there it says in some cases It may not be clear whether a signature was meant to be that of an endorser a party to the instrument in some other Capacity such as a drawer maker or acceptor or a person who was not signing as a party Suppose a depository bank gives cash for a check properly endorsed by the payee the bank requires the payee's employee to sign the back of the check as evidence that the employee received the cash. If the signature consists only of the employee, it is not reasonable to assume that it was meant to be an endorsement. If there was a full signature, but accompanying words indicated that it was meant as a receipt for cash given for the check, it is not an endorsement. So there's circumstances, and again, presentment is generally the the circumstance under which this would happen. You present the the check for cash. And the bank says, well, we want something for our records showing that we actually paid you. Sign the back of the check as a
1: receipt. Well, In the the event that a check is presented to a bank for deposit as compared to the return of cash, is that a negotiation? I
3: think there are circumstances under which it is. And I think those circumstances are defined under 25-4-205. Which are? The customer. The, the depositor is a customer of the bank. Right. And um,
1: well and you're, if your if your bank if your if your client is is dealing with its bank, that then would be true. That's right? correct. So keep keep going.
3: Um, and it then says whether or not the customer endorses the item. Right. Um, and it says the depository bank warrants to collecting banks, the payer bank, so on and so forth, that the amount of the item was paid to the customer or deposited to the customer's account. So what this statute is getting at is that situation where you present the check to the bank, uh, not present, sorry, you deposit the check with the bank, and the bank immediately credits your account.
1: That's, that's not a negotiation, but if we go through the older process, it is. Other
3: way around, way around. Okay, if, if the bank gives you credit before they've actually received money from the bank that issued the check, then the bank does become a holder, and I would say it is a negotiation because the bank has essentially created a liability. They've said, we're giving you $1,500 even though we haven't received $1,500 from the issuing bank. The bank needs some recourse against you in that situation because they have given you cash for value without receiving cash for value themselves. That's not necessarily how every deposit works.
4: Uh, and, counsellor, one other follow-up or clarification. I-, I-, I thought I heard you say that presentment was uh, that there wouldn't be a negotiation when there's a presentment my understanding from from my readings here is that presentment is just the condition precedent to a bank or uh, a drawee bank having to pay the, on the document and it could and, and it's just true however it is delivered to the bank it's presentment it's how you get paid and That's unless correct. you show up with the check you're, they're not going you can't say my check's back home in the drawer, give me my $50. And so they're really not related directly, or they don't, they're not mutually exclusive. When you negotiate and you're asking to be paid, that is presentment, am I correct? Do I have the right?
3: There, there's a chain of events that can lead from deposit to negotiation to presentment. They are certainly related concepts. So you can have a bank that credits your account for $1,500 and then becomes a holder so there's a negotiation, and then ultimately presents that check to the issuing bank, and that would be the ultimate presentment.
4: But isn't it? You say ultimate, but isn't it true when, whenever, if you look at presenters' warranties uh, versus transfer warranties under these documents, the presentment is the, when it is presented either to my bank or a, a collecting bank or a payee bank, a payer bank. That that first time it's actually presented. That's a presentment because that is a condition precedent to getting paid. I'm concerned that there's a muddling of the difference in negotiation and presentment. Presentment is a condition sub precedent to payment, and it's 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 a different concept than negotiation, at least the way I understand it.
3: And, and I, I'm I'm trying to make it clear that it is a different condition okay. to negotiation. And what I'm trying to point out is that the statute by allowing my client to receive cash property allows my client to directly make presentment to the issuing bank and say i've got this check i want cash for value i don't want to go through the whole deposit process i'm just going to show up at your bank and say statute allows me to receive cash property i've got a check that's made out to my client care of fund holder reports i am presenting this check for you issue me cash for this check and then you can you can do that without negotiation. You can do that without deposit. It is, at that point, just simple, bare-bones resentment, and I think the statute specifically allows that. Um, the last point I'd like to make, Your Honors, is that the statute 116B defines owner to include the owner's legal representative. This is the agency point. that um, My client is, as long as they're acting within the scope of their agency, the owner of the property here. So they're allowed to take certain actions as the agent of the owner. And I think if you depart from that concept, everything else that we were just talking about stops making sense. And there's a very simple reason why it stops making sense. If you want to talk about my client negotiating, the only sort of people who can negotiate are holders. If you're not a holder, you don't have authority to negotiate a check. If my client isn't acting on behalf of the owner, then they aren't the holder. If my client isn't entitled to payment on the check, that's one of the requirements for being a holder, then they aren't a holder, and they can't negotiate the check. So it's kind of a, uh, they're they're on the, the horns of a dilemma here. Either my client is acting as an agent and is entitled to payment on the check and can negotiate the check, or they're not, and my client can't ever negotiate the check. So whatever my client is doing can't be a negotiation. And that's why agency I think is the key to unlocking the riddle of this statute. But I think I'm into my rebuttal time. I would just say the statutory language here by saying my client is allowed to receive cash property, by saying that uh, the word negotiate rather than, than deposit, and by defining fund holder reports as the owner, because they're the owner's legal representative, those are three independent reasons why you should rule in my client's favor. Thank you, Your Honors.
2: Thank you, Counsel. We'll hear from the appellate.
0: Good afternoon, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. My name is Sam Magrum from the North Carolina Department of Justice. I'm pleased today to be appearing on behalf of the Treasurer. This case involves the interpretation of a provision of the Unclaimed Property Act that prohibits property finders from negotiating checks made payable to property owners. The General Assembly adopted this provision, Section 116B-78D, in order to ensure that the owners of unclaimed property receive it safely. Consistent with this purpose, the department determined in its declaratory ruling that a property finder negotiates a check and therefore violates the non-negotiation provision when it deposits that check at its bank. Because this interpretation is dictated by the plain text of the statute, we respectfully ask that this court affirm the Court of Appeals. The Unclaimed Property Act establishes a comprehensive plan by which our state identifies, collects, and protects abandoned property and then returns it to its owner. It applies to all sorts of property, uh, including tangible property like that found in a safe deposit box and a refund from the electric company. And it charges the Department of the State Treasurer with its enforcement. The Department takes this responsibility very seriously, and it works assiduously to return property to its rightful owner. Section 78 regulates property finders, that is companies that contact the owners of abandoned property, and then for a fee help them to collect it. In adopting this section, the General Assembly sought to protect property owners' interests. And the section does this in a number of ways. Uh, For example, it mandates certain disclosures in property finder agreements so that owners are fully informed about the nature of their property and the fact that it's being held by the state before they enter into a, a property finder agreement. It also caps the fees that property finders can charge for their services. Property finder agreements that violate any of the protections of section 78 are rendered void and unenforceable and constitute an unfair or deceptive trade practice under chapter 75 of our general statutes. This case turns on the meaning of 78D, the non-negotiation provision. And that provision limits how the department can return property of all types when it is claimed pursuant to a property finder agreement. It says that tangible property, like jewelry for example, can only be sent directly back to the owner. Similarly, securities like stocks have to be re-registered into the owner's name alone. In other words, the department can't mail a property finder an owner's gold watch or stock certificate. Similarly when the department is sending cash, which it does in the form of checks, the property finder shall be allowed to receive cash property but shall not be authorized to negotiate the check made payable to the owner." And this makes sense. Just as the General Assembly didn't want a property finder to possess an owner's gold watch, it didn't want a property finder to actually possess an owner's funds. What the provision prohibits by its plain text is the property finder negotiating the check. This is the key part uh, of this case. In fact, this case boils down to one question. Does a property finder negotiate a check when it deposits it at its bank? And the answer is yes. So first, I would like to walk the court through why the department's declaratory ruling was correct on the plain text of the statute. At
1: least under the declaratory ruling in the event that Mr. Gibson's client was mailed the check and then promptly either hand-delivered the check to its client or remailed the check to its client. The Department doesn't have any problem with that.
0: That's correct, Your Honor. Uh, that is exactly what a fund holder could do in compliance with 78D, and in fact, it's what other property finders who operate in the state in compliance with the law do today. Um, and, and so that's you know, not a negotiation uh, under, the, under the definition of negotiation. Uh, the, the plain text of the statute provides that property finders can't negotiate a check. And negotiation is a term of art. It has a specific and well-understood meaning in banking and finance. And under that really uncontroversial definition, a negotiation takes place when two things happen. First, there's an endorsement, which basically means that the check is signed. And second, there's a transfer of possession. A property finder does both of these things when it takes an owner's check to the bank, signs the back, and hands it over to the teller. This is a negotiation.
1: What, what what response do you make to Mr. Gibson's discussion with me? And I am not a negotiable instruments expert, so you know, go slowly. Um, he says in effect that there are occasions that it depends upon when credit is given to uh, the person in question as to whether depositing a check makes a works a negotiation. What's your response? Then his argument is, in essence, well, it can't mean what you say it means because there's sometimes you have a negotiation and sometimes you're not, depending on what the form of the transaction is.
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely, Your Honor. So, first of all, I would point out that the UCC definition of negotiation, which uh, Fundholder itself cited in its opening brief, doesn't say anything about presentment or about credit. It, it talks about an endorsement and a transfer of possession.
1: Uh, but his, his argument, I think, is takes the definition and then at least as I understood what he was saying, says on some instances you can have a presentment without a negotiation and you can occasionally have a a deposit without a negotiation.
0: Uh, Respectfully to my friend on the other side, Your Honor, presentment is is not a term that's contained in the Unclaimed Property Act and it's also not in the, it's not referred to in the the definition of negotiation. Um, What presentment, my understanding is that what presentment really means is, and it most happens, most often happens between banks, is that, the bank where the check was ultimately deposited goes back to the issuing bank, and that's when they, when they settle between the two of them. Um, that is not uh, what happens when a property finder uh, goes to its own bank where the check was not drawn and deposits it into account. Into well, it, an account. it might or it might not be, depending upon what banks we're talking about. Uh, th- that's correct, Your Honor. I, under the specific uh, instance of this case, those banks are different. Um, I, I also think that you know, reference to the, the, the kind of the purpose and the structure of the act makes clear that the General Assembly wasn't seeking to regulate only certain instances, depending on which which bank is the drawing bank and which bank is the is the depositing bank. What, what do you think that the General, I mean, writ large, what is the
1: consumer protection aim that is served by the
0: interpretation of the statute that you're advocating that we adopt? A- Absolutely, Your Honor. The General Assembly adopted. Uh, Section 78 and Section 78D specifically uh, as a means of protecting property owners by regulating property finders. And, in fact, that's exactly what the name of it is. But
1: but what specific consumer protection goal is served by interpreting the statute the way that you suggest
0: it should be interpreted? Absolutely. The the provision prohibits a property finder from having actual uh, possession of an owner's property, and this is important, Your Honor, because uh, the department, once it sends a check or it sends any other property uh, to the owner, it loses control of it. And its job is to make sure that that property gets back to the owner. When, and, and so the General Assembly's purpose in adopting 78D was to make sure that the property in its entirety gets back to the owner. Now if, if a property finder is permitted to receive the check and then go to its bank and deposit that check and then do what Fundholder did, which is automatically take its fee, out of, the, um, out of that amount and transfer it to its own operating account, there is considerable potential for a property finder um, to perhaps take an excess fee that's in excess of the agreement or in excess of the, uh, of the statutory cap. And, and it would Mr. be then. Good. Go ahead.
1: I I heard somebody else speak and I was yielding. Okay. It, Mr. Gibson suggested that another way to do it would be to use the type of settlement process that I mean, I'm familiar with from my own days in private practice, and uh, in effect, disperse it like you would any other settlement. I take it that the so that the, the disbursement would take place at a conference in which everybody's present, and somebody signs the settlement state, statement. In your, I understand that's not what his client was doing at the time. The request for declaratory ruling was made, but does your approach to the statute preclude that system too?
0: I believe it does, Your Honor, and I think that that reflects the General Assembly's judgment about the best way to strike a balance between permitting property finders to operate, but also ensuring consumer protections. Uh, Certainly one could imagine a statutory scheme in which Mr. Uh, Gibson's uh, scenario of, you know, akin to a lawyer would, would be operative, but that's not,
1: that's not was, the statute. I was going to say, I don't think we're called upon to imagine the statutory scheme. I think that's for the General Assembly. I think we have to look at what we've got
0: now, right? Uh, absolutely, Your Honor. And I, and I would just point back to the, the definition of negotiation, which which includes two things, which requires two things for a negotiation to happen. It requires that there be an endorsement of the check, and then that there be um, that there be a transfer of possession.
2: I, I would let's, let's let's talk about that for just a minute because uh, the theory with trust accounts uh, is that um, the the proceeds in a trust account uh, are there for the benefit of, in this case, the the owner and the owner has to uh, agree to a disbursement from the trust account. Um, is the use of a trust account adequate to protect the safeguards and comply with subsection or Section D of the statute?
0: I don't think so, Mr. Chief Justice. Um, the, a property finder can't create its, an alternative safeguard when the General Assembly has specifically provided one. And so I, I think there's a lot of reasons why that that's so because Continue. in this it's
2: the precise language of the statute to walk me through and help me appreciate given a, a, a trust account or trust arrangement mm-hmm. via a power of attorney how that that would be uh, in violation of section d
0: absolutely so section d says that the property finder can't negotiate the check when it and negotiation has has two aspects to it or two um uh, two components <coughs> in the context of a check, uh, and that's uh, UCC 25-3-201, A and B, and that's the definition that both both sides agree on. And what that says is that a check is negotiated when it's endorsed and when it's, there's a transfer of possession. And so I think, you know, perhaps where we, where we disagree based on, uh, on on Fundholders' argument a few moments ago is, is whether the property finder is a holder. But I would, I would point this court's attention to page 10 of Fundholders' response brief, where it actually conceded that it was a holder of the check. And so, it is a holder of the check, uh, it signs the back of it, uh, and then it deposits it. And, and you know at that point, there's, it's a, the definition of negotiation doesn't really say anything about into what type of account it's given.
2: Well, with a trust account, is there an ownership claim by, in this case, the true owner of the property? I mean, isn't that the purpose of using a trust account is to Uh, pretty much say that both parties have an opportunity, both potential claiming parties have the opportunity to weigh in as to how the funds are to be dispersed?
0: Uh, I think, you know, it's important to note that what Fundholder was doing in in this case is it was putting the funds into a bank that it it chose and then it was withdrawing its fee and putting that fee into its own operating account without involvement uh, by the actual owner of the property.
2: I thought there was something about that they didn't do that until the actual owner had cashed the check that
0: was dispersed. Uh Your Honor, the the check that is sent from fund holder to the owner was the full amount that that person owed less fund holder's fee. But, so, but,
2: but in terms of timing, weren't they waiting until that, ca- that check was cashed before they distir- distributed to themselves?
0: I, I don't believe faith. so, Your Honor. But in, in in either case, the the property finder would have control of of those funds because it's its bank and it controls the, the trust account. Um, and I think what the General Assembly was seeking to do was to empower owners. And so, if an owner were then to have to go and litigate this and say that this cash, you know, this check was was cashed by my was negotiated by the property finder, it took an excess fee, it would then have to go to bring the property finder to court and try to, try to uh, claw back those, that excessive fee. And that's exactly-
2: and, and, Excuse me, but you did say were that to occur, uh, they could make an unfair and deceptive trade practice claim.
0: That's correct, Your Honor. Um, but it, again, it would put the onus on the property owner to vindicate their rights. And I think what, what the statute reflects, and it's kind of read in the context of, of the broader um, pro- provision, 70 d is that the General Assembly didn't want the property finder to ever have control of uh, of the underlying property because, again, it shifts the burden onto the owner to make sure that they're getting exactly what they're entitled to.
2: So under your uh, approach, uh, uh, your colleague indicated that uh, taking a a check to the bank and presenting it and receiving $30,000 in cash, uh, would that violate the statute?
0: Uh, Well, Your Honor, we would say that that would constitute a negotiation. Um, because they would be bringing it to the bank, and in order to, to cash the check to deposit it, they would have to endorse it and then hand it over to the bank. Um,
2: well, they're not depositing the check. They're uh, uh, simply getting the proceeds that the check represent, represent in, in cash.
0: I see. Uh, yeah, if they were to receive it in currency, uh, it would still be a negotiation, and because it doesn't matter where the funds where the <laughs> ultimately end up. What matters, again, is that there is that endorsement and that, that change of possession. Uh, so, so you,
2: you don't agree with the presentment theory?
0: That's correct, Your Honor. Um, and, and presentment, again, is, is there's nothing in the statute that refers to it, and in fact, the UCC definition of negotiation, which you know, both sides agree is the <coughs> most constructive definition, um, doesn't say anything about it. Either. What, what it says is, again, uh, that, that there's an endorsement and a change in possession.
2: So, you, you read, to receive cash property uh, and then shall not be authorized to negotiate the check in your reading of the statute the general assembly intended cash property to mean the check or as represented by the check
0: that's precisely right your honor um you can, know.
4: can i just ask you then you, you you said earlier that other property finder companies operate consistent with the definition that the treasury treasurer has said should apply in this statute. And so what do they do differently?
0: Absolutely, uh, Your Honor. So what they, what they do is they can receive the check uh, in the mail, uh, care of, they take care of it, they protect it, and then they will then uh, turn it over to the owner. And it's then the owner is free to go to their bank and deposit it and, and negotiate the check and get the funds. Then it becomes the, you know, the responsibility of the, the property finder to bill the owner and say we agreed you would you would pay ten percent or whatever the, the fee is, um, and then the owner would pay the property finder, um, and, and that that again is it's a it's a means of consumer protection because it permits the uh, the owner to make sure that the fee is appropriate, it's consistent with the agreement, and then they can and then they can send that check. Um, you know I, I think it's it's important to highlight the implications of of fundholder's theory of agency here, that. Fund fund holder basically is saying that it can avoid regulation simply by exercising a power of attorney, uh, that it it no longer is acting as a property finder and isn't subject to regulation. But if this were true, then, you know, an attorney acting uh, as an agent of her client could commingle her client's funds and escape the consequences by saying, I wasn't the one doing it, I was acting as an agent of my client. And that's, you know, that's exactly what... uh, fund holder's interpretation results in. They basically read the statute's prohibition on a property finder possessing an owner's property out of existence. And you know, again, just returning briefly to, to the General Assembly's uh, purpose here, you know, the act that added the bulk of the protections of section 78 was actually entitled an act to protect the owners of abandoned property by regulating property finders. And throughout the, the section, uh, it refers to owners exclusive of property finders, and it on one hand has owners who it seeks to protect and on the other it has property finders who it seeks to regulate. The definition of, of property fi- of owner, excuse me, includes legal representatives actually, precisely so that someone who is not in a position to claim their property themselves can use, for example, a spouse or a parent to claim those funds without having to engage the services of a property finder because, again, property finders charge a fee and it's the, the legislature's intent to return property uh, to its owner with a minimum of fees if at all possible. I would also you know, point out that the hypothetical scenarios that the fund holder has identified in which 78D would still offer cons- owners some protection aren't persuasive and that's because those scenarios are already prohibited under existing laws. and so effectively the fundholder interpretation uh, runs afoul of, of this court's well-established precedent that you know statutory provisions are to be read such that they have an effect um, and that they are not redundant uh, and that's because of course we assume that the general Assembly doesn't intend to enact surplusage. I would like to briefly touch on the Uniform Power of Attorney Act and the common law, which were addressed at length in in, uh, Fundholders' Briefs. Uh, There is no conflict between the Uniform Power of Attorney Act and the Unclaimed Property Act. Uh, The Uniform Power of Attorney Act creates a general set of default rules about uh, what those acting pursuant to a power of attorney may and may not do, but it does not supersede more specific uh, statutory uh, limitations. And in fact, the Uniform Power of Attorney Act says exactly this. It says that it does not supersede any other law applicable to financial institutions or other institutions and the other law controls if inconsistent with the provisions of this chapter, unquote. A property finder is certainly an other entity and 78D is inconsistent with the Uniform Power of Attorney Act with regard to, the, not, to uh, the negotiation of checks. Even if the Uniform Power of Attorney Act didn't have this specific provision, the unclaimed property act would still govern. Um, And that's because as this court explained in Lumbee River, the specially treated situation is regarded as an exception to the general provision. So in other words, the specific law governs over the general. And the same principle applies uh, to common law and explains why the common law does not present an obstacle to the department's interpretation. The General Assembly has the undisputed authority to abrogate common law by enacting a statute that is at odds with it. And that's exactly what it has done in enacting the Unclaimed Property Act and Section 78D, which says that property finders can't negotiate checks.
2: So I, I want to be sure I understand. In your interpretation, uh, every time uh, a deposit is made, whether it's to uh, the actual account of a property finder or to a trust account, uh, every time there's a deposit, that's a negotiation.
0: That's absolutely correct, Your Honor.
2: And that's based on what definition of negotiation, 3201?
0: Uh, exactly, Your Honor, which is on page two of the, of the state's appendix, of the department's okay. appendix, excuse me.
2: And uh, a transfer of possession. So uh, I guess one of the arguments uh, is that uh, uh, if the property finder has a power of attorney, then it would not be. A TRANSFER OF POSSESSION BECAUSE THE CHECK IS ACTUALLY GOING TO THE INDIVIDUAL WHO HAS GIVEN THE POWER OF ATTORNEY uh, TO THE FINDER. Uh, AND YOUR ARGUMENT WITH REGARD TO THAT IS, uh, BUT uh, THE POWER OF ATTORNEY STATUTE uh, WOULD NOT BE applicable TO uh, 116B 78D.
0: Uh, Well, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, we would certainly say that the Uniform Power of Attorney Act doesn't control in light of of the Unclaimed Property Act, but I I would make two additional responses to that. Uh, First, uh, possession transfers at the point at which any person hands the check over to the bank where they are negotiating the check. So it doesn't matter if if it is a property finder negotiating the check or the owner of the property. Uh, When they sign the back and they hand it over, they've negotiated a check. Uh, and that's consistent not only in the UCC definition, it's, it's consistent with uh, Black's Law de- uh, definition and a number of courts across the country that, that have held the same the same thing. Um, and so, you know, at the point at which... What, what if they deposited it into
2: the owner's account?
0: That would still be a negotiation, Your Honor, because if, say, an owner were to receive the check directly from the department, you know, if an owner weren't to use a property finder, and they were to go deposit it into their own account, that would be a negotiation because uh, an average North Carolinian like like you or me uh, would go to the bank, sign the back, which is an endorsement, and then transfer possession to the bank so it doesn't matter uh, the nature of the account into which the funds are going, whether it's a trust account or not um, I, you know I think the trust account here uh, doesn't serve any kind of protective purpose, particularly where uh, the property finder is in control of the funds, and so I think you know It doesn't offer the same type of protections that 78D offers uh, by its plain text. But in in any event, it doesn't matter what type of account the money is being deposited into because there's a negotiation. So, the third point I would like to make is that even if this court were to have any doubt about the correct meaning of the non-negotiation provision. It ought to defer to the the department's interpretation because because the department's interpretation is reasonable. Um, Agency interpretations of statutes that they administer are accorded great weight. Uh, This court explained just a few years ago in North Carolina Acupuncture Licensing Board that courts give, quote, great weight to an agency's interpretation of a statute it is charged with administering. Of course, an agency's interpretation isn't binding on the court. But where it is reasonable, uh, deference is appropriate. And there are several specific reasons why deference is particularly appropriate in this case. Uh, one, the department's interpretation was thorough and well reasoned, and uh, the fact that the Court of Appeals agreed with it certainly speaks to that. Second, this court held in Wells that where an agency is interpreting a complex legislative scheme uh, that draws on its expertise, deference is uh, particularly warranted. And that's uh, what we have here. The Unclaimed Property Act is extensive. It spans 32 sections. It is comprehensive. It governs the state's approach to unclaimed property. Uh, and it has a number of technical provisions uh, that draw on, you know, for example, the laws of negotiable instruments. And certainly the department's expertise in financial affairs is of great value to the court. And the final reason that deference is particularly appropriate is that as this court held in Wells, uh, deference is appropriate where there's apparent legislative acquiescence. Um, and the court explained that when the legislature chooses not to amend a statutory provision that has been interpreted in a specific way, we assume it is satisfied with the administrative interpretation, unquote. After all, the General Assembly knows how to set aside an agency's interpretation, and it hasn't done so here. And in fact, the, the, the year after the declaratory ruling uh, was released, The General Assembly revisited the Unclaimed Property Act and made a number of changes to the Act, and it did nothing to displace uh, the agency's, the department's interpretation. Excuse me. Now, Funholder made a a few arguments about why deference isn't appropriate, and I I would like to respond to them um, quite quickly. Um, Funholder argued that the department has been inconsistent in its interpretation of the meaning of the non negotiation provision, and this is incorrect. The department has been entirely consistent. At no time has it suggested that uh, a property finder can negotiate a check made out to an owner. Uh, as soon as it became aware that this was fund holder's practice, it communicated to fund holder that this was uh, contrary to law. And that's at uh, page 109 of, of the record uh, is, that, is the first communication. There were a number of subsequent communications in which it affirmed that interpretation. And it's the position that it maintained uh, at, the, at the Court of Appeals and stands by today. Fundholder also argued that the Department isn't entitled to deference because it doesn't administer uh, the uh, Uniform Power of Attorney Act. But this case is about the interpretation of the Unclaimed Property Act, which the Department certainly interprets. So for all of those reasons, uh, we would suggest that if the Court were to have any doubt about the meaning of the technical terms, negotiation, or, or any other terms that deference would be appropriate in this case. Section 116B-78D prohibits property finders from negotiating checks made payable to property owners. A property finder negotiates a check when it endorses it and when it transfers possession of it to the bank. And this is exactly what the department's declaratory ruling said. I'm of course happy to answer any further questions the court might have. Absent any, we would respectfully ask this Court to affirm the Court of Appeals.
2: Thank you, Counsel.
3: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Um, I have three brief points, um, and I'd like to explain why those points matter practically. The first is, you heard several times the treasurer define negotiation to mean a transfer of possession and an endorsement. I think their argument hinges upon that definition. But that is just not the way the Uniform Commercial Code defines negotiation. Uh, 3-201, subsection A. Negotiation means a transfer of possession, whether voluntary or involuntary, of an instrument by a person other than the issuer to a person who thereby becomes a holder. Negotiation is all about who the holder of a check is. And the holder of a check is all about who is entitled to payment. That's why it matters that this is a trust account. That's why it matters that this is a valid power of attorney. If I negotiated a check every time I deposited it into my client's settlement account, the state bar could rightly call me up and say, you are laying claim to your client's funds. Because if I am the holder, I am the person who is entitled to those funds. That is how the UCC defines the term holder. But when I deposit those checks in trust, I am not the person who is entitled to those funds. Fund holder reports is only acting as an agent here. The Uniform Commercial Code makes clear that an agent's possession is the principal's possession. An agent's deposit is the principal's deposit and a deposit doesn't change who the owner of the funds is. And you can see that in the record. Um, If you look at record pages uh, 46 and 47 and and around there, um, the fund holder reports in the past sends an invoice. So for example, the invoice at 46 is dated 327. The next page says, schedule a payment. They have sent. The schedule of payment on June 27th, and they have scheduled it to be delivered on July 5th. The reason for that delay is they are waiting for their client's confirmation before they transfer those funds, because those funds are not theirs, and they freely acknowledge that those funds are not theirs. Lastly, Your Honors, this court has expressly dealt with the issue of whether or not a presentment is a negotiation. We dealt with this in the 1960s. This is established case law. Modern Homes, which uh, we addressed and cited in our brief, talks specifically about this. The delivery of an instrument to the drawee is not a negotiation. It is a surrender for payment. The signature of the payee's name in such case operates only as a receipt. When I hand that check to the issuing bank, the drawee bank, and say, give me money, I haven't negotiated anything. I have just fulfilled the purpose that the check always had, which is to be exchanged for money. And that's why uh, the treasurer's position here just does not make sense. If my client is not acting as an agent, my client is not the holder. If my client is acting as an agent, my client is the holder, and their acts are legitimate. And that's why you should rule in my client's favor. Thank you.
2: Thank you, counsel.
4: Rise.